The God's Peculiar People podcast presents a recording of the book, The Life of Dwight L. Moody, by his son, William R. Moody. The Life of D.L. Moody Chapter 7 City Missionary Work The compiler of a city directory is not expected to act as an historian. But the variety of occupations there accredited to Mr. Moody between 1858 and 1869 is not without significance. He had arrived in Chicago too late in 1856 for his name to appear in the directory for the succeeding year, and the first record is found in 1858, when he was in the employ of Mr. Wiswall. This item reads, Moody, Dwight L. Clark, boards 255 Wabash Avenue. A year later, it is Salesman, C. H. Henderson and Company boards 81 Michigan Avenue. And in 1860, Mr. Henderson having died, he is entered as salesman, Buell, Hill, and Granger, boards 81 Michigan Avenue. From this time on, the agent recorded him first as a librarian in the Young Men's Christian Association, then as a city missionary. And in 1865, he is entered as the pastor of Illinois Street Church. In 1867, his occupation is designated as President Young Men's Christian Association, and the last entry, in 1872, is as superintendent of the Northside Tabernacle. Mr. Moody was always a law unto himself, and the independent and unusual way in which he entered Christian work made it difficult for the directory agent to place him exactly. So, for want of a better title, he was librarian, city missionary, or pastor, as the case might be. The truth of the matter was that Mr. Moody had laid up sufficient money to support himself for the time, and entered Christian work without a salary turning his back upon an income of over $5,000 a year at the age of 24. During the first year, he received about $300 from friends who had become interested in his work, and by strict economy, he hoped to make his savings last some years. Beyond that, he planned for nothing, for he felt confident that since the Lord had called him to the work, he would support him in it. If such support should fail, however, he could go back to selling shoes. Had not St. Paul made tents while he preached the gospel? And so he began his work, with no board at his back, no society to guarantee his salary, his dependence was on God. Beginning his mission work with children, he had gradually, as had been described, gained access to their homes, and lay consciously entered regular evangelistic work before he knew it. It would be difficult to state exactly when he began that special service, in which later he became so widely known, as it was rather a developed gift, and then an ability suddenly displayed. To aid him in his visiting, Mr. Moody bought a little Indian pony, known as his missionary horse. The pony was, of course, a source of special enjoyment to the children, and by giving rides to the younger ones was made to contribute to the popularity of Moody Sunday School, as the North Market Hall School had now come to be called. It was not an uncommon sight to see him on one of his missionary trips, with one or two children behind him on the horse, a little one in his arms, and more crowding about, seeking the next turn. Many stories are told of the wonderful pony, among others how Moody, riding at full speed, seized a rather boisterous, mischievous boy who'd been throwing stones at him, and lifted him by the coat-collar, placing him across the saddle, and carried him two or three blocks, securing thereby his lasting respect. In those days, young Moody did not always receive the sympathy and respect which came to him only as a reward of years of trial and many critical experiences. Writing of those early days, his friend and most intimate associate in evangelistic work, Major D. W. Whittle, thus describes him. It must have been in the spring of 1859 that as I was passing by Clark Street in Michigan, someone on the sidewalk said, There goes Crazy Moody. I turned, looked down the street, and saw a young man of about 21, short and stocky in figure, weighing about 150 pounds. 
He was riding a small pony, his trousers in his bootlegs, a cap on his head, and as I watched him he reined up to the sidewalk in front of the Methodist block at the corner of Clark and Washington streets. I was two years younger than Mr. Moody and had been in Chicago since April 1, 1857. We were both from the Connecticut Valley in Massachusetts, but had known nothing of each other in the East. I had been interested in some degree in the revival meetings of 1857 and 1858, and had heard how Moody was visiting houses, building up a mission school, talking to people on the streets, and doing all sorts of eccentric things. The newspapers were full of jokes about him, and he was called by the reporters Brother Moody. Like many others, I had the impression that he was crazy. How little, I thought, as I looked upon him that day, that my life would be influenced by him and his wonderful career. It was during his last summer, as we talked about the death of Norman Williams, whose funeral he had recently attended, that we spoke of those early days when he had first known Mr. Williams. At that time his ambitions had been to become one of the successful merchants of the city, and he had devoted himself with great energy to go ahead of all the band of young men with whom he was associated, to sell more goods than any of them. There was only one of them, but that I felt I could equal, and that was Marshall Field, he used to say. It was just at this time that he won the heart of one, who two years later became his wife. It is not permitted the writer to offer to one still living the credit that her heroism, faith, and affectionate devotion deserves, but it may be simply stated that in Emissy Revel, Dwight L. Moody found his greatest human resource. To her wise counsel he gave more heed than to that of any other, and he never failed to express to those nearest him the inestimable debt he owed to the best wife God ever gave to a man. It was when he had renounced worldly ambitions, and contrary to the advice of all his friends, and had launched out into what was considered a wild undertaking, that she, a girl of only seventeen, promised to cast in her lot with him, a promise fulfilled two years later by their marriage in 1862. Her educational advantages had been greater than his, and she became his most able assistant in every undertaking. No trial was so severe, no burden so heavy, that he could not find in her one whose fellowship afforded the warmest sympathy, and whose faith and self-sacrifice could be counted on. In many ways she served to balance his impetuous nature, and he would often acknowledge the helpful service her judgment had been, and regret on occasion that he had acted without first consulting her. Although Mr. Moody now gave a great deal of time to evangelistic meetings, sometimes speaking himself, but more often securing other speakers, he did not neglect the recruiting of students for his Sunday school and to keep the interest from flagging, he had recourse to every device for sustaining its popularity. He used to make much of picnics, entering into the spirit of them with as great zest as the youngest child. He was not only an unusually strong man, but also a very fast runner. At one of these picnics he picked up a barrel nearly filled with apples, and holding it so the apples would spill out, he ran ahead, followed by the boys, who gathered up the fruit as it dropped. Among the premiums for good conduct and regular attendance, one summer season, thirteen boys were promised a new suit each at Christmas, if they would attend regularly until that time. Their descriptive names were indicative of their social status, which may be judged from the following list. Red Eye, Smikes, Madden the Butcher, Jackie Candles, Gibberick, Billy Blue Cannon, Garby the Cobbler, Butcher Lyray, Greenhorn, Indian, Black Stovepipe, Old Man, and Rag Breeches Cadet. All but one fulfilled the conditions. Mr. Moody had them photographed before and after the donning of the suits. The picture entitled, Does It Pay? And It Does Pay. This uniform group became known as Moody's Bodyguard. Thirteen years later, one of Mr. Moody's friends called at a railway ticket office. The agent, after looking at him curiously for a moment, asked him to step aside and said, You do not seem to know me. No, I have not had that pleasure. You know, Mr. Moody's bodyguard? 
"'Yes, I have a picture of it in my home.' "'Well,' said the agent, "'when you go home, take a square look at the ugliest of the lot, "'and you will see your humble servant, now a church member, "'an heir to Mr. Moody in that work.' "'As the success of his evangelistic efforts began to be noticed, "'Mr. Moody was addressed by friends in other cities soliciting his aid "'in behalf of wild or dissipated young men who had wandered to Chicago.' Letters were received from all parts of the country, in which parents, brothers, sisters, and friends pleaded with him to look up some wanderer and to do what he could to save them, and no such appeal was made in vain. A friend, in describing this personal feature of Mr. Moody's work at this time, says, At one of these Sabbath evening services I saw one of the most distinguished lawyers of Illinois, from the heart of the state, sitting by the side of his son, who had been snatched as a brand from the burning by the earnest appeals and prayers of Moody. The lawyer had written to Moody to save his son if he could, Words cannot tell the work accomplished in those days, nor describe the intense earnestness of the audience through the enthusiastic singing of the old evangelical hymns and the Sabbath school tunes. If ever the Lord was praised from full hearts, it was at these meetings. It was natural that a man so practical as Mr. Moody should have had a strong desire to see definite results. There were times when he became depressed if he failed to see immediate conversions, but he had lessons to learn here as in other matters. In a characteristic story, he describes how he learned to put away doubt and discouragement. One Sunday, he says, I had preached, and there did not seem to be any result. On the Monday, I was very much cast down. I was sitting in my study, brooding over my want of success, when a young man who conducted a Bible class of one hundred adults in my Sabbath school called upon me. As he came in, I could see he was way up on the mountaintop, while I was down in the valley. Said he, What kind of a day did you have yesterday? Very poor. I had no success. I feel quite cast down. How did you get on? Oh, grandly! I never had a better day. What was your subject? I had the life and character of Noah. Did you ever preach on Noah? Did you ever study up his life? Well, no, I don't know that I ever made it a special duty. I thought I knew pretty well all that there was in the Bible about him. You know, it is all contained in a few verses. If you never studied it before, you had better do it now, he said. It will do you good. Noah was a wonderful character. When the young man went away, I got out my Bible and some other books and read all I could find about Noah. I had not been reading long before the thought came stealing upon me. Here's a man who toiled on for a hundred and twenty years, and never had a single convert outside his own family. Yet he did not get discouraged. I closed my Bible. Cloud had gone. I started out to a noon prayer meeting. I had not been there long when a man got up and said he had come from a little town in Illinois. On the day before, he had admitted a hundred young converts to church membership. As he was speaking, I said to myself, I wonder what Noah would have given if he could have heard that. He never had any such results from his labors. Then, in a little while, a man who sat right behind me stood up and said, I wish you'd pray for me. I would like to become a Christian. Thought I to myself, I wonder what Noah would have given if he had heard that. He never heard a single soul asking God for mercy, yet he did not get discouraged. I have never hung my harp on the willows since that day. Let us ask God to take away the clouds in unbelief. Let us get out of Doubting Castle. Let us move forward courageously in the name of our God, and expect to see results. It is of those early days that Dr. H. C. Maybe writes, I first met Mr. Moody in the fall of 1863 in Chicago. I had come into the city from my Illinois home on a farm to enter the old University of Chicago as a student. I was then 16 years old. Having been introduced to Mr. B. F. Jacobs of Chicago and Mr. J. R. Osgood of Indianapolis, even then famous Sunday school men and deeply interested in boys and young men, I was by them taken back to the Methodist City block to visit. For my first time, the daily noon prayer meeting of the Young Men's Christian Association. This had become a famous meeting. It was conducted mostly by young laymen, the first meeting of its sort I had ever attended. 
as we passed in there was a stocky bustling saint simon sort of a man standing at the door and shaking hands with all who entered he spake an earnest word to each at the closing of the meeting the same man remained to speak and pray with an inquirer or two who had shown signs of interest during the meeting this honest man was mr moody and it made an impression upon me for life i had never before seen a layman so making it his business to press men into the kingdom as he seemed to be doing i had learned to expect that of ministers but i had never seen a layman so dead in earnest but i liked it the entire uncommonness of the thing impressed me and created in me a yearning to learn the divine art if it were possible it soon grew to be a mighty desire in me and it was not many months until in the summer vacation i found myself in the midst of a great revival in my native town some two hundred of the young people being gathered in i was for three months immersed in the flood of this blessing this was several years before i had any definite purpose formed to enter the ministry indeed i was never conscious of a formal resolution on that subject until i found myself through the pressure exercised by others ordained i was simply set on fire by the contagion of such earnest lives as i had seen living before me in that circle of chicago laymen of whom mr moody was the leader and others like mr jacobs bliss rockwell and cole were the foremost having gotten a taste of their joy and soul winning i never lost it it was they who made me feel the responsibility of the ordinary and everyday member of the church for the conversion of sinners as I had never felt. The Moody of later years and his great evangelistic triumphs was simply the Moody of that early time, expanded, enlarged, manifolded by the thousand and one auxiliaries which, by his matchless magnetism, he ever continued to gather about him. He had the greatest power to set others to work, and thus multiply himself, of any man I ever knew. When fourteen years later, as a young pastor in Boston, I was again brought into contact with him in his great tabernacle meetings in 1874, I once more came under his spell. It was but to find myself a willing learner at his feet, in numberless service, and in choir meetings. His own force of will, greatly enlarged by his contact with eminent British workers, keyed to the high purpose of saving men, made us all feel we were enabled to do anything we ought to do, so long as we were under his command. Hence, as we would obey his summons to go down into the lower Tremont Temple to deal with inquirers, or to the market men's meeting in Faneuil Hall, or to the shoe dealers' meetings on High Street, or where not, we confidently went, feeling we could not wholly fail because he sent us. The Life of D.L. Moody Chapter 8 The Civil War and the Christian Commission I'm going to join the Christian Association tomorrow night, Mr. Moody had written to his brother, under date of April 19, 1854, immediately after leaving home for Boston. Then I shall have a place to go when I want to go away anywhere, and I can have all the books I want to read free, and only have to pay one dollar a year. They have a large room, and the smart men of Boston lecture to them for nothing, and they get up a question box. These attractions and benefits of the Young Men's Christian Association were keenly appreciated by young Moody from the start. On his arrival in Chicago, he joined the association, which had recently been organized in that city as one of the results of the revival movement, and took an active interest in the noonday prayer meetings conducted under its auspices. After giving up business, he devoted much of his time to association work, with which he was closely identified at the beginning of the Civil War. In the days that followed the firing on Fort Sumter, Chicago, like all the other cities in the Union, felt the greatest excitement. Camp Douglas was formed near the southern limits of the city, and their recruits were massed, and instructed. Among these new soldiers were a large number of Moody's boys of the North Market Hall. A company was also raised among his friends and former associates in business, and on all sides he was urged to enter the service of his country. 
The cause of the Union appealed to him most strongly, for by all the traditions of his home and his New England training, he was an ardent abolitionist. During his stay in Boston, he listened frequently to the eloquence of such orators as William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, and Elijah P. Lovejoy. His uncle's boot and shoe store on Court Street was opposite the courthouse, and there he joined in the mob that attempted the liberation of Anthony Byrne, a fugitive slave. On this occasion, the hot-headed youth of Boston were dispersed by the soldiers' musketry, but the event left an impression even greater than the eloquence of Faneuil Hall. Later, when an employee at Wiswall Boot and Shoe Store, the clerks from neighboring houses, who met frequently with Mr. Moody and his fellow salesmen, constituted themselves into a lyceum, where the point of political difference between the North and South were warmly discussed by representatives of both sides. In spite of all this, he could not conscientiously enlist. There's never been a time in my life when I felt that I could take a gun and shoot down a fellow being. In this respect, I am a Quaker, was his explanation. At the same time, he was alive to the opportunity of doing good, offered by the military camps, and at once assisted in forming an army and navy committee of the Young Men's Christian Association, consisting of J.V. Farwell, B.F. Jacobs, and himself. Later, this work was affiliated with the Northwestern branch of the Christian Commission. The first Christian work undertaken by the Commission consisted of services held among the soldiers that passed through Chicago. On the forming of Camp Douglas, a work was organized which resulted in the erection of a small temporary chapel, in which over 1,500 meetings were held. Edgar W. Hawley, who was among Mr. Moody's oldest associates in Christian work in Chicago, thus described the beginning of this work. At one time, there were about 12,000 men there. Regiments were coming in and others going to the front all the time. The Young Men's Christian Association had a chapel for the use of the men where frequent meetings were held. The Western branch of the Christian Commission included, among its members, J. V. Farwell, B. F. Jacobs, Mr. Moody, and several others. We issued an army hymn book with an American flag on the front page, and it was distributed freely among the soldiers. We visited the tents and barracks and found the men playing cards and proposed to exchange our hymn books for the cards. The soldiers agreed quickly enough. Indeed, so numerous was the exchange that several of the Young Men's Christian Association rooms were full of playing cards which men had surrendered. This camp was fully struck, the men having all gone to the war. General Grant had captured Fort Donelson and had taken 10,000 Confederate prisoners, of whom about 9,000 were sent to Chicago and placed in Camp Douglas with the regiment of our men as guards. It was a period of popular apprehension, and the people of the city were very nervous. A week afterward, at the close of a Union prayer meeting, Moody said to me, Holly, let us go down and hold a meeting there in the chapel with the prisoners. It was about five miles down to the camp, and as we got near the entrance, Moody said, Holly, here is a ministerial pass. Take it. But how will you get in past the guard? In some way, was the confident reply. The guard passed me right in, but Moody was halted by fixed bayonets. Stand back, came the stern order. I am Moody, president of the Young Men's Christian Association, he explained to the soldier. I don't care who you are. You can't get in here. At that moment, the captain who was passing stepped up and recognized the evangelist. To him, Moody appealed. Let me in, he urged, for the work's sake. The officer turned to the guard. Let one of your men take Mr. Moody to headquarters. I will be responsible. We marched in. Moody under military guard. On the matter being explained at headquarters, the officer in charge said, Well, seeing you are here, and considering your object, you may stay. But don't repeat it. If you are not out of here by 8 p.m., you go into the guardhouse for the night. We went to the chapel, arranged things, and invited the men. It was soon packed full. Turning to me with a twinkle in his eye, Moody said, Now, Holly, you preach. I remonstrated and said I wasn't a minister. But you came in on a ministerial pass, and I didn't, he persisted. 
So I quietly acquiesced, and we had an interesting service. Mr. Moody took charge, and it seemed as though the Spirit of the Lord came down upon these men with great power. They came forward to the altar, twenty, thirty, forty at a time. We closed the meeting and began inquiry work. Moody had the platform, and God used him wonderfully. The whole audience melted, and we saw strong men in tears. God is here, Moody whispered to me. We looked at our watches. It was but a few seconds of eight, and we had to run to get out of the camp, having no notion of passing night in the guardhouse. These meetings were kept up two or three weeks, and many were converted. We formed a young men's Christian association branch at the camp, and there were many kind expressions of gratitude, even from the higher officers, who were greatly pleased with the work. In a letter to his mother at this time, Moody wrote, I am now working among the soldiers a good deal. I had a good time in Kentucky. The boys wanted to have me become their chaplain, but my friends would not let me go, so I shall remain in the city. I would like to see you all and talk with you about my Savior, who seems so near to me. Oh, what would life be without Christ? I sometimes get to looking down on this world of sin, but when I look to Jesus, it makes me look up. My gospel services, prayer meetings, song services, distribution of Bibles, books and tracts, and my personal invitation, he tried to win the soldiers to Christ. He organized the Christians into a band of brothers, who were to carry the banner of Christ with them, and be loyal to one another and to their divine captain. The experience gathered from this work constituted most efficient training for his later career as an evangelist. His sermons show many an evidence of the Christian Commission work in the numerous illustrations drawn from his interviews with the soldiers. Even camp phraseology left a permanent influence upon his vocabulary, and in organizing large conventions or conducting evangelistic campaigns, he would call upon some workers to reinforce another, and would urge his associates to press the fight all along the line. The peculiar surroundings and impressive conditions under which the work was conducted made it necessary to urge his hearers to accept immediate salvation. This was ever afterwards a conspicuous feature of his manner of address. With wounded men, hovering between life and death, or with men on the march, resting in some place which they would have to leave the next day, it was, at least as far as he was concerned, the alternative of now or never. As he would not allow himself or them to be satisfied with never, he bent his whole energies to now. He was on the ground ministering to the wounded after the battles of Pittsburgh Landing, Shiloh, and Murfreesboro, and he was with the army at Chattanooga and among the first to enter Richmond. It was after one of these battles that the following incident occurred, which Mr. Moody himself frequently related. We were taking a large number of wounded men down the Tennessee River after the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing. A number of young men of the Christian Commission were with me, and I told them that we must not let a man die on the boat that night without telling him of Christ in heaven. You know the crying of a wounded man is water, water. As we passed along from one to another giving them water, we tried to tell them of the water of life, of which, if they would drink, they would never die. I came to one man who had about as fine a face as ever I saw. I spoke to him, but he did not answer. I went to the doctor and said, Doctor, do you think that man will recover? No. He lost too much blood before we got to him on the field, that he fainted while we were amputating his leg. He will never recover. I said, I can't find out his name, and it seems a pity to let him die without knowing who he is. Do you think we can bring him too? You may give him a little brandy and water, said the doctor. That will revive him, if anything will. I sat down beside him and gave him brandy and water every now and then. While I was waiting, I said to a man nearby, Do you know this man? Oh, yes. This is my chum. Has he a father or mother living? He has a widowed mother. Has he any brothers or sisters? Two sisters, but he is the only son. What is his name? William Clark. I said to myself that I would not let him die without getting a message for his mother. Presently, he opened his eyes, and I said, William, do you know where you are? He looked round 
a little dazed, and then said, Oh, yes, I am on my way home to Mother. Yes, you are on your way home, I said. The doctor says you won't reach your earthly home. I thought I'd ask you if you had any message for your mother. His face lighted up with an unearthly glow as he said, Oh, yes, tell my mother that I die trusting in Jesus. It was one of the sweetest messages I ever heard in my life. On returning to Chicago, Mr. Moody at once looked up the widowed mother and two sisters, and delivered the message from the dying soldier. As he was leaving the house, one of the sisters, only a child at the time, came to him and gave him the small savings of her sister and herself, with the request that he purchase a Bible to give to some soldier. When he went back to the front, Mr. Moody related this incident, asking who wanted that Bible, and there were a number of petitions for it. Soon after, God called the children to join their brother, but not till their childish ministry had been used as a blessing to many a soldier. Another war incident that Mr. Moody frequently repeated occurred after the Battle of Murfreesboro. I was stationed in the hospital, he said. For two nights I had been unable to get rest, and being really worn out, on the third night I had lain down to sleep. About midnight I was called to see a wounded soldier who was very low. At first I tried to put the messenger off, but he told me that if I waited till morning it might be too late. So I went to the ward where I had been directed, and found the man who had sent for me. I shall never forget his face as I saw it that night in the dim, uncertain candlelight. I asked what I could do for him, and he said that he wanted me to help him die. I told him I would bear him in my arms into the kingdom of God if I could, but I couldn't. Then I tried to preach the gospel. He only shook his head and said, He can't save me. I have sinned all my life. My thoughts went back to his loved ones in the north, and I thought that even then his mother might be praying for a boy. I repeated promise after promise, and prayed with the dying man, but nothing I said seemed to help him. Then I said that I wanted to read to him an account of an interview that Christ had one night while here on earth, an interview with a man who was very anxious about his eternal welfare. I read from the third chapter of John, how Nicodemus came to the Master. As I read on, his eyes became riveted upon me, and he seemed to drink in every syllable. When I came to the words, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He stopped me and asked, Is that there? Yes, I said. Well, he said, I never knew that was in the Bible. Read it again. Leaning on his elbow on the side of the cot, he brought his hands together tightly, and when I finished, he exclaimed, That's good. Won't you read it again? Slowly, I repeated the passage the third time. When I finished, I saw that his eyes were closed, and the troubled expression on his face had given way to a peaceful smile. His lips moved, and I bent over him to catch what he was saying, and heard in a faint whisper, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He opened his eyes and said, That's enough. Don't read any more. Early next morning I came again to his cot, but it was empty. The attendant in charge told me that the young man had died peacefully, and said that after my visit he had rested quietly, repeating to himself, now and then, that glorious proclamation, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The following description of one of the journeys Mr. Moody took to the scene of battle is sent by a friend. During the winter and spring of 1861 and 1862, I was a medical student in the city of Chicago, and saw Mr. Moody almost every day as he went hurrying about busily engaged in his good work. That was in the early days of the Young Men's Christian Association, and he was looked upon as one of the most active promoters of that association. The great battle of Pittsburgh Landing was fought on Sunday and Monday, the 6th and 7th of April, 1862, 
The news reached Chicago on Tuesday the 8th, and on Wednesday morning a call came for physicians and nurses for the wounded. For supply of both, it was entirely inadequate for the work to be done. Accordingly, the Young Men's Christian Association was called upon to send as many nurses as possible, and I, being a medical student, was invited to be one of the company. A special train was made up by the Illinois Central Railroad Company, and by 5 or 6 o'clock Wednesday night, we were at the depot, ready to be off. Our train was a heavy one, carrying about 60 or 75 physicians and about 300 nurses, besides many supplies. I had a seat in the center of the car, which was comfortably full. When we were two or three hours out of Chicago, and everyone was getting settled down in his seat for the night, we had no sleepers then, I was aroused by a gentle tap on the shoulder, and asked if I would not attend Mr. Moody's prayer meeting, which was then to be held in the front end of the car. I wasn't a Christian then, and I didn't go, but nevertheless my conscience gave me a stinging rebuke, and I was set to thinking. In the forward end of that car was Mr. Moody, engaged in conducting a prayer meeting. In the rear end was a company of men playing a game of cards. I couldn't help realizing the wonderful zeal of the man in his great work, and how earnest and careful he was that no duty be neglected, no opportunity lost. We reached Cairo on Thursday, April 10th, were transferred from our train to the steamer, and soon on our way up the Ohio and Tennessee rivers. When evening came, the passengers were sitting about in groups in the large cabin. Mr. Moody, with his young men's Christian Association assistants, passed through the crowd, and began inviting the men to attend prayers in one corner of the large room. There again he conducted a service. I don't remember seeing anything more of the card players, as on the first evening, so on the next, I didn't attend prayers. But I remember that among those who didn't, there was no effort made to disturb the meeting, nor was any evidence of disrespect shown as far as I could see. On Friday afternoon, about three o'clock, we reached Pittsburgh Landing, and were at once sent to the different steamers that were standing there, loaded with hundreds of wounded soldiers waiting for our arrival. And so were scattered in all directions. I saw no more of Mr. Moody during that trip, but have thought of this circumstance many, many times, and of the intense Christian zeal by which he always impelled. Many an instance is related of Mr. Moody's enthusiastic ad admiration of heroism. And this was, of course, accentuated when there was the added quality of unspoken loyalty to Christ. Such a soldier Mr. Moody recognized in Major Whittle, who was then a lieutenant in the 72nd Illinois. After the Battle of Vicksburg in 1863, this young officer was sent to home severely wounded. His popularity in the city called forth a great demonstration in Chicago on his return. The American Express Company, in whose service he had been engaged, sent their employees with a band of music, and all their wagons to escort him from the station. A few days later, Lieutenant Whittle was asked to make a speech at the Patriotic Rally, where a number of prominent men had been invited to speak. Referring to this occasion, Major Whittle says, I, a boy of twenty-one, was put forward to speak, with Bishop Simpson on the platform behind me, waiting to give his address. I was weak from my wound and felt foolish being in such a position. Directly in front of me, in the center of the hall, a sturdy young man jumped to his feet and cried, Give him three cheers! I recognized the face of Mr. Moody as he led the cheering with great earnestness. This manifestation of sympathy nerved me for the few words that followed, and I have often thought it was a specimen of what his courage, faith, and example have been to me all through his life. When I told him sometime afterwards of how good his sympathies had done me that night, and how vividly I remembered his earnest, determined look as he led the crowd, I was rewarded by his reply, I took you into my heart that night, and you have been there ever since. While serving with the command of General O. O. Howard, who was in thorough sympathy with his efforts, Mr. Moody's ministry was especially fruitful. General Howard thus spoke of his work in the Army. Moody and I met for the first time in Cleveland, East Tennessee. 
It was about the middle of April, 1864. I was bringing together my 4th Army Corps. Two divisions had already arrived and were encamped in and near the village. Moody was then fresh and hearty, full of enthusiasm for the master's work. Our soldiers were just about to set out on what we all felt promised to be a hard and bloody campaign, and I think we were especially desirous of strong preaching. Crowds and crowds turned out to hear him. He showed them how a soldier could give his heart to God. His preaching was direct and effective, and multitudes responded with a promise to follow Christ. These wartime experiences introduced Mr. Moody to a larger field by bringing him prominently before the whole country. The Young Men's Christian Association noon prayer meetings in Chicago became a center where he and his fellow workers met and reported on their frequent excursions to the front, and people from all over the Northwest sent in requests for prayer at these meetings on behalf of husbands, brothers, and sons. When the Spanish War broke out and thousands of young men were again gathered into army camps, Mr. Moody's heart went out toward them with the same longing that had urged him on during the Civil War. His experiences in 1861-65 through 65 helped him to arouse the churches in this new emergency. He became chairman of the evangelistic department of the Army and Navy Christian Commission, whose methods of work were fourfold. 1. The preaching of the gospel by well-known ministers and evangelists to whom the men would listen. 2. The placing of young men's Christian association tents within reach of each regiment, whether the men might go as a place of resort and where they might find reading and writing materials. 3. The free distribution of Bibles, Testaments, hymn books, and other religious books. And 4 the visitation of the sick and wounded in hospitals. The following letter, which he wrote at this time, resulted in great blessing to thousands of soldiers in the great military camps during the summer of 1898. Thirty years ago, war clouds gathered over our land, and the Church of God was aroused as I have never seen it since in behalf of the young men of America. This earnest expressed itself in the formation of the Christian Commission, and everywhere efforts were made for the religious interest of the soldiers. Meetings were held everywhere, and many a camp became the scene of a deep and effective revival, and for more than thirty years I have been continually meeting men who were converted in those army meetings. Now the dark shadow of war again rests upon our land. Is it not possible that God intends to use even the darkness of this evil for the blessing of the youth of this land? And while he has called us to become the instruments of his justice, may he not have in store a season of revival for those who, brought face to face with danger, and a realization of the seriousness of life may be reached when at other times careless and indifferent. It seems to me that it is just the nick of time in which to reach thousands of young men with the gospel, either through a testament, a good book, or the spoken message. A minister in Philadelphia writes me that there is an excellent opportunity of doing good at Tampa, and I have no doubt that other camps offer equally favorable conditions. Moody was preaching in Pittsburgh when one of the first regiments started for Cuba. He mentioned that incident at the meeting, and raised several hundred dollars in order to follow these young men with the gospel. Major Whittle, Dr. A.C. Dixon, Rev. R.A. Torrey, and others were sent, and an appeal was made for money to send books as well as men. The Young Men's Christian Association also desired to send workers to the front, and the War Department decided that it would have only one religious body among the soldiers. Army and Navy Christian Commission was organized, and Mr. Moody was made the chairman of the evangelistic department. The object of the organization was to reach the soldiers and sailors of the United States in the Army and Navy with the Gospel of Christ. Bibles, religious books, library books, and the new Army Hymn Book, compiled by Mr. Sankey, were sent in great quantities. Major Whittle gave this incident, among many, showing the very important nature of the work done through this agency. I called on a dying lieutenant this afternoon, who said that he was turned to God at the first meeting held in the camp. 
I did not know about it at the time, but my heart was full of gratitude to God as the dying man's face lit up in recognition of me. His hot hand pressed mine as he drank in. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And other scripture passages. He told me that he did in his heart trust Christ. We sang to him, My faith looks up to thee, and commended him to God in prayer. He has a wife and five children. He was a traveling man, and unsaved up to the night of May 27th. The doctor said that there was no help, and that he would die today. If God has been pleased to use my coming here to save that one soul, I will praise him through eternity. Another incident is given here with. We spent our forenoons going to the hospitals. There were about 1,000 men in Chickamauga in the various hospitals, sick with malarial fever and typhoid fever, and every day brings us to the bedside of some hungry, thirsty, dying soldier. One of our workers went to the hospital and asked, May I go in and see the sick? Is there anything I can do? For God's sake, yes, said the surgeon. Go with that woman. She has just arrived from the north, and I can't bear to tell her that her boy won't recognize her. He is dying. He won't live five minutes. Go in with her. So he went in and stood by the cot where this soldier was breathing his last. He couldn't recognize his mother. And this mother, a lady dressed in black, stood there at the foot of the cot, watching the last breath of her dying boy. And when at last his soul had gone, she turned back the sheet that covered him, and there upon his army shirt was a badge of the Epworth League. He had had it transferred from a soldier's coat to his shirt. He told the nurse he wanted to wear that badge when he was dying. As his mother looked upon it, she burst into a sob, and the whole tent of six soldiers and doctors and nurses sobbed with her. And what a privilege it was for our delegate to tell that mother, I was here yesterday and talked with your boy. I've been speaking with this man here about being a Christian, and your boy overheard it. And when I came to his side, he said, Oh, dear me, how can that man get along without Jesus? I said to him, Are you a Christian? And with a smile upon his face, he said, You bet I am. And he turned back the sheet and showed me the badge upon his breast. And I talked with him and prayed with him. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 9 Sunday School Convention Work at the close of the war in 1865, Mr. Moody returned to Chicago and again engaged in Sunday school work. He had made known his purpose to his former associates in the Christian Commission, William Reynolds and B.F. Jacobs, by announcing, when the war is ended, let's give our strength to Sunday school work. His mission school in Chicago was a revelation. William Reynolds was carrying on one in Peoria. M.C. Hazard was superintending one in Galesburg. But there may have been others. Of the work at this time, Mr. Hazard says... Mr. Moody's mission school was the first large effort in this direction. The reports of it were stimulating. Many made the journey to Chicago to inspect it and find out its methods. Those methods were widely copied, and the success of that school caused the starting of many others. The mission school movement, if it did not originate with Mr. Moody, received a great impulse from him. He popularized it and gave it strength and momentum. His methods of getting children to attend it were unique. He made use of many devices to draw them in. In his recruiting excursions, his pockets were always filled with oranges, candy, maple sugar, or something toothsome. At one time, he offered a squirrel with his cage to the one who could bring in the large number of scholars within a specified time. He was fertile in expedients to lure in the boys and girls. But having secured them, he was equally inventive in his effort to retain them. Once on his roll, he looked after them, visited their homes, if absent, and taking such a warm and practical interest in them that they became devotedly attached to him. But Mr. Moody did not wait for Sunday school workers to come to Chicago to learn of him. He went out to them. He began holding conventions on behalf of the Young Men's Christian Association work, in which some of his Sunday school methods and experiences were narrated with telling effect. 
The organization of the Illinois State Sunday School Association, however, gave him a great opportunity. The state soon became enthusiastic on Sunday school work. Great crowds running up into the thousands attended its conventions. The Advance reported the meeting at DuCoin, and 50,000 copies of the paper were ordered by the State Association for Distribution. The reports of some of the subsequent meetings were similarly widely scattered. What was being done in Illinois stimulated other states to imitation. Thus, the movement spread from state to state, resulting finally in national gatherings and they in international assemblies. The first convention of the Illinois Sunday School Union was held in March 1859, but owing to the Civil War, which engrossed attention by its large needs and the opportunities for Christian effort, it was not until 1864 that the second convention could be held. On learning of the arrangements for this gathering, Mr. Moody at once planned to be present. The Sunday School Convention is to be held in Springfield, beginning on Tuesday morning, he announced to his friends, Mr. Jacobs and Reverend J. H. Harwood. Let's go to Springfield on Friday evening and visit all the pastors, superintendents, and choirs, and hold special meetings on Sunday and Monday, and see if the convention can be something besides a parade. The proposition seemed practical, and on the Friday evening preceding the convention, the three started for Springfield. On their arrival the following morning, they went to the hotel, and after breakfast set out in search of some quiet place for their prayer meetings. The Baptist church nearby seemed to offer what they were looking for, and they entered it through the basement. The three delegates seated themselves on the pulpit sofa and used the large Bible on the desk, from which they read. Then they knelt in prayer, and while thus engaged, the door opened. When the prayer was ended, Reverend N. D. Minor, the pastor, who had entered meantime, came up to them saying, You are welcome, brethren, whoever you may be. Arrangements were at once made for special meetings there. The convention was well attended, and at the close of the Sunday afternoon service, a number of conversations took place, while the following meetings on Sunday and Monday awakened a deep religious interest in the community. By the time the convention assembled on Tuesday, the town was in the midst of a revival, in which the Sunday school delegates took an earnest part. Many of them were deeply affected and carried the influence of the convention into all parts of the state. In the fall of that year, the Chicago Sunday School Union decided to perfect its organization. The Reverend, now Bishop, John H. Vincent, was called from his church and became the first superintendent of the Union, and on January 1, 1865, began the publication of the Chicago Sunday School Teacher, thus providing a bond of strength to the Chicago Sunday School workers, and in 1866, Mr. Moody became the Vice President of the Union. At the convention held in Peoria in 1865, Mr. Moody was made a member of the State Sunday School Executive Committee which devised a plan for canvassing all the counties and securing their local organization. To this action may be traced the system that now exists in America. The state was divided into districts, and Mr. Moody and others volunteered to attend conventions. He went with an earnest purpose and a burning zeal that was felt everywhere throughout the state. The reports of his work created demand for services in other places, which he met. As it is indicated in the following extract from a letter to his mother, The Lord is blessing my labors, and I think you would say, God bless you, go forward. I was away all last week on Sunday school conventions. Got to go again this week and all of next week. So you see, I am driven more than I ever was in my life. I have crowded houses where I go. Last week the house was full and the sidewalk outside, so they had to open another church and I spoke in two houses. The Lord blessed me very much and the work commenced in great earnest, so they have sent for me again. I was invited to go down to a little town in the state of Michigan, he relates, of the beginning of a certain revival. A minister, who was a perfect stranger to me, came to the depot to meet me, and took me to his house to dinner. After dinner he took me out to the meeting. There was about twenty-five wives and mothers on their knees, as I went into the house, weeping and praying to God to bless their unconverted children and their unconverted husbands. 
Then he took me off to the other end of town, and introduced me to an old elder of the church. The man was dying with consumption, and now that he had given up and could not get out of the house, he began to realize that he had not been a faithful steward, and yet he must soon give an account before God of his stewardship. There was not a young person in the whole congregation who was a member of the church. Not one of the sons or daughters of the officers and elders or members had joined it. There had not been a revival there for a great many years. First he himself began to pray. Then he sent for his brother elders, and told them how he felt, and wanted to have them pray. They had become so discouraged and disheartened that they could not. Then he sent for the men of the church and talked to them. They too had become discouraged. Then he sent for the women of the church, and there the dying man pleaded with them to meet together to pray for God to revive his work. This had been going on for two weeks before I got there. That night I preached, and it was as if preaching against the air. It seemed as if every word came back to me. But about midnight a boy came downstairs to his father, who was a member of the church, and professed Christ, and said, Father, I want to have you pray with me. The father said he could not pray. He didn't sleep any that night. But the next morning, at the prayer meeting, he got up and told us about it, and said he wanted to have us pray for him. A father that professed to be a Christian, and could not pray for his own son, who was weeping over his sins. Well, we prayed for him, and inside of twenty-four hours there was not a young person upwards of twelve years old, whose father or mother was a member of the church, that did not give evidence of being converted. God came suddenly to his temple, and there was a mighty work. I think one of the grandest, one of the best works I have ever seen in my life. The work was revived as soon as the church began to pray to God to revive it. When Mr. Moody belonged to the executive committee of the State Sunday School Association, he would often turn a county convention into a prayer meeting or a revival meeting. At Pontiac, Illinois, there was a revival that swept through the country. Several lawyers joined the church, and the court adjourned at ten minutes before noon to attend the noon prayer meeting. The revival began by Mr. Moody's going through the town one day and talking to every man, woman, and child he met. Approaching a group of politicians, he heard one of them say of a proposed nominee, I think that man could carry the country. My friend, interrupted Mr. Moody, we want to carry this country for the Lord Jesus Christ. The politician, with a Westerner's appreciation of a joke, slapped Mr. Moody on the shoulder, burst into a laugh, and cried out, I am with you there, old fellow. Mr. Moody's words became the watch cry of the whole religious movement. In writing of these early experiences in Sunday School Convention work, Mr. Jacobs relates the following incident. Perhaps the most dramatic scene that has ever occurred in an Illinois Sunday School Convention was at Quincy in 1870. Philip C. Gillette was chosen president, in opposition to the wishes of a few persons, who, seeing the power of the convention, were trying to turn it into a different channel. Watching for an opportunity, they selected the time when Mr. Moody was answering questions that had been submitted in writing, and dropped into the box an inquiry that reflected unpleasantly upon the executive committee. Mr. Moody first read the question, then with great power reviewed the work of the committee, disclaiming credit for himself and magnifying the work of others. In his own effective way, he spoke of the continued blessing that had rested on them as a token of God's approval. He closed by tendering the resignation of all the members of the committee, and then said, Let us pray. In a prayer of sweetness and power, he led the congregation near to God. He remembered those who had made an attempt to turn the convention aside from its great work, and prayed for them too. The effect was indescribable. Audience, estimated at 3,000 persons, was greatly moved, and upon motion, the committee was re-elected by acclamation. Other states shared with Illinois the benefit of Mr. Moody's help in Sunday school work. He attended county and state conventions in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa. It was at the Minnesota Sunday School Convention held in Winona that Mr. Moody first met Miss Mary V. Lee and Miss Sarah J. Timanis. Both were teachers in the Minnesota State Normal School. After hearing them speak and teach, Mr. Moody conferred with others about them, and they went to Illinois and attended county conventions. 
Following this, Miss Timanis, now Mrs. W. F. Crafts, was employed by Mr. Moody and Mr. Jacobs to superintend the primary classes of their Sunday schools and attend county Sunday school conventions. She was for 12 years president of the International Primary Union. Up to this time, the Sunday school lessons had been entirely a matter of selection with the teachers of individual classes, or at best with officers of a Sunday school. Instead of a system of Bible study for everybody, each class was following its own course. The possibilities of a general system of Sunday school instruction now occurred to Mr. Moody and his associations in the state Sunday school work. The subject was first agitated in Chicago, where a number of schools were induced to use the same lesson. The advantages of the plan were evident immediately. Mr. Moody continued to urge its general adoption. Later, the system was accepted by the State Sunday School Union, and in 1868, Mr. Moody, who then printed a periodical called The Heavenly Tidings, induced Mr. Jacobs to contribute brief notes on these lessons. In other State Sunday School conventions, where he was increasingly in demand, Mr. Moody urged the system of lessons adopted by Illinois. It was widely appreciated, so that in 1869, at the National Sunday School Convention in Newark, New Jersey, a committee was appointed to arrange what has become the International Sunday School Series of Bible Lessons. Mr. Moody always retained his deep interest in the work in which he was engaged at the time. Even after he began to devote himself more fully to evangelistic work, he frequently attended the conventions of the Sunday School workers. In 1876, he was made president of the Illinois State Sunday School Union. He took an active part in the Galesburg, Illinois Convention in 1880, and was a daily speaker at the International Convention held in Boston in 1869. At the latter gathering, his old fervor was manifested, and he tried to awaken all of the delegates to their personal responsibilities in the salvation of the children entrusted to their teaching. Again and again did he plead with the Sunday school workers to be faithful, writes a friend who was present. His voice, full of pathos, seems to those who heard it to sound forth even now the solemn words. If I had the trumpet of God, and could speak to every Sunday school teacher in America, I would plead with each one to lead at least one soul to Christ this year. Life of the Moody, Chapter 10 Early Evangelistic Efforts Although Mr. Moody was now engaged in state Sunday school conventions and Young Men's Christian Association activities, his interests were still strong in the work begun in the North Market Hall. The continuous growth of the school there, and the many conversions that had taken place from the first were clear proof of its success, and the evening gospel services during the week were attended with very encouraging results. In time, the demand for the establishment of a permanent church organization grew urgent. Mr. Moody hesitated for some time before considering such a step, urging the new converts to ally themselves with neighboring churches. He was always adverse to multiplying agencies when existing organizations needed support, and preferred therefore to devote his energies to evangelistic work yielding to the denominational churches the function of indoctrinating the Christian faith. But it was in this effort that one of his few failures must be recorded. The allegiance to North Market Hall on the part of the converts was stronger than Mr. Moody's advice, and those who had come to the knowledge of Christ under the instruction there given could not be induced to leave the school. It was inevitable, therefore, that a permanent church organization should be formed. This was accomplished in 1863. And a year later, the Illinois State Church, as it was called, was settled in a suitable place of worship. The church building itself was plain, but with ample accommodations for the congregation and Sunday school, the auditorium having a seating capacity of 1,500, and in addition, there were several classrooms. The Reverend Mr. Harwood was called to the pastorate, and Mr. Moody was one of the deacons. The church became the center of various forms of Christian activity. It was open every evening in the week, and gospel services were supplemented by regular church meetings, while special gatherings for mothers and young women 
Bible studies, prayer and prayer services, missionary rallies, and similar services were of regular occurrence. In the homes of the members, cottage meetings were also gathered, while open-air services were held regularly during the summer. Among other services, Mr. Moody had children's prayer meetings. Some of the happiest nights I ever had were in those children's prayer meetings, he used to say. Some people don't believe in early conversion. If they have a mother or father, they'll take care of them, they say. Then they complain, if you don't get a hold on them and they are converted, they won't hold out. Well, that is not my experience. Some of the most active men that I had to help me in Chicago were little barefooted boys picked up in the lanes and byways whom I had at my children's meetings. I was once sent for by a mother who was on her deathbed. She had been married twice. Her second husband abused her some terribly. Now I'm dying of consumption, she said. I have been sick a long time, and since I've been lying here I've neglected my boy. He's gotten to bad company, and he's very, very unkind to me. Mr. Moody, I want you to promise me that when I'm gone, and he has no one to take care of him, that you'll look after him. I promised that I would. Soon after she died, and no sooner was she buried than the boy ran away. The next Sunday I spoke to the children in my Sabbath school, and asked them to look for him, and if they found him, to let me know. For some time I did not hear from him, but one day one of my scholars told me that he was a bellboy in a certain hotel. I went to the hotel, found him, and talked with him. How well I remember that night. There was no place where we could be alone in the hotel, so I asked him where we could go and not be disturbed. He said the only place he knew of was the hotel roof. We went together up there, and I spoke to him about Christ, and what he had done for him, and how he loved him. The tears trickled down his cheeks, and when I asked him if he wanted to know Christ, he told me he did. I prayed with him, and he became a Christian. Below was the tumult of the city. It was the night before the 4th of July, and they were firing off cannon and sky rockets. While there on the roof, at midnight, this boy was praying. Many years later I met him again. He is now an active Christian, superintendent of a Sunday school, and he comes to Northfield frequently in the summer. He has held on, and he is leading others. Mr. Moody's zeal was well known in Chicago. He would not wait for opportunities to be made for seeking to bring men to Christ, but made them himself. It is related how, on one occasion, he accosted a young man, apparently just come from the country, with his frequent inquiry. "'Are you a Christian? It's none of your business,' was the curt reply. "'Yes, it is,' was the reassurance. "'Then you must be Mr. Moody,' said the stranger. The hostile criticism received in those days was by no means limited to mere scoffing. Often he would be directly criticized. But with an ever-ready tact he would turn the thing to his credit with a splendid self-possession. On one such occasion, Mr. Moody was one of several speakers at a convention. A minister who followed him took occasion at his speech to criticize him, saying that his address was made up of newspaper clippings, etc. When he sat down, Mr. Moody stepped to the front again, and said he knew it was so, that he recognized his want of learning and inability to make a fine address. He thanked the minister for pointing out his shortcomings, and asked his critic to pray that God would help him to do better. On another occasion, Mr. Moody was subjected to a great deal of annoyance from those who used to attend the open-air service and noon prayer meetings, with the express purpose of making a disturbance. These occurrences occurred with a persistence that became almost intolerable. At the close of a prayer meeting one day, Mr. Moody was standing at the door, shaking hands with the people as they went out. As an added trial of Mr. Moody's patience, the irrepressible disturber himself advanced, extending his hand. For an instant there was a hesitation. Then, accepting the proffered hand, he said, I suppose if Jesus Christ could eat the Last Supper with the Judas Iscariot, I ought to shake hands with you. There were times when his old, quick temper broke out again, but even on such occasions it would seem that the momentary weakness was turned to good, so humbly and sincerely did he repent. 
One evening, after an unusually earnest evangelistic appeal, Mr. Moody was standing near the door of the inquiry room, urging the people to come in. The entrance to the room was by the lower landing of the stairs, and Mr. Moody was just at the head of a short flight. While he stood there, a man approached him, and deliberately and grossly insulted him. Mr. Moody would never repeat the insult, but it must have been an unusually bitter one. Instantly, he thrust the man from him, and sent him reeling down the remaining stairs to the vestibule. Happily, the man escaped uninjured, but having given way to a sudden temptation, he was keenly rebuked by his conscience for what had caused a serious accident. A friend who was present on the occasion and witnessed this scene described what followed. When I saw Mr. Moody give way to his temper, although I could not but believe the provocation was extraordinary, I said to myself, This meeting is killed. The large number who have seen the whole thing will hardly be in a condition to be influenced by anything more Mr. Moody may say to-night. But before Moody began the second meeting that night, he arose and with trembling voice made a humble apology. Friends, he said, before beginning tonight, I want to confess that I yielded just now to my temptation, out in the hall, and have done wrong. Just as I was coming in here tonight, I lost my temper with a man, and I want to confess my wrong before you all, and if that man is present here, whom I thrust away from me in anger, I want to ask his forgiveness and God's. Let us pray. There was not a word of excuse or vindication for resenting the insult. The impression made by his words were wonderful, and instead of the meeting being killed by the scene, it was greatly blessed by such a consistent and straightforward confession. Mr. Moody never lost an opportunity for reaching those whom others could not reach, and many an incident is related of his thus invading the enemy's country. Once he was invited, as a joke, to the opening of a great billiard hall and saloon. He saw the owners, and asked permission to bring a friend. They consented, but asked who he was. Mr. Moody said it wasn't necessary to tell them, but he never went without him. They understood his meaning and protested. "'Come, we don't want any praying.' "'You've given me an invitation, and I'm going to come,' he replied. "'But if you come, you needn't pray.' "'Well, I'll tell you what we'll do,' was the reply. "'We'll compromise the matter, and if you don't want me to come and pray for you, "'when you open, let me pray for you both now.' "'To which they agreed. "'Mr. Moody made them kneel down on the instant, "'and then prayed that their business might go to pieces, "'but that God would save them. The first thing Mr. Moody does with those whom he succeeds in bringing under Christian influence is to turn them to account in pushing on the work, writes Reverend David McRae, a Scottish clergyman, in his account of a visit to Mr. Moody's Sunday school in his early sixties. No place is too bad, no class too hardened to be despaired of. He sometimes takes a choir of well-trained children with him to the low-drink saloons to help him attract the drunkards and gamblers to his meetings. On one such occasion, which was described to me, he entered one of these dens with the squire and said, "'Have a song, gentlemen.' No objection was offered, and the children sang a patriotic song in fine style, exciting great applause. Mr. Moody then started with the hymn and went around, while they sang the stripping tracks. When the hymn was over, he said, "'Well, now, have a word of prayer.' "'No, no,' several cried in alarm. "'No prayer here.' "'Oh, yes, we'll have a word. Quiet for a moment, gentlemen.' And he offered up an earnest petition. Some of the men were touched and when he invited them to go to his meeting and hear more, about half of them got up and went. It often required a great deal of tact to adapt a young convert to work best suited to his abilities, but to this Mr. Moody proved himself equal. "'Every man can do something,' he said. There was a Swede converted once in our mission in Chicago. I don't know how. I don't suppose he was converted by my sermons, because he couldn't understand much English. But the Lord converted him into one of the happiest men you'll ever see. His face shone all over. He came to me, and he had to speak to an interpreter. The interpreter said that the Swede wanted to have me give him something to do. I said to myself, What in the world will I set this man to do? He can't speak English. So I gave him a bundle of little handbills, 
and put him out on the corner of the great thoroughfares of Chicago, and let him give him out, inviting people to come up and hear me preach. A man would come along and take one and see gospel meeting, and then turn around, perhaps, and curse the fellow, but the Swede would laugh, because he didn't know that he wasn't blessing him. He couldn't tell the difference. A great many men were impressed by the man being so polite and kind. When the winter came, and the nights got so dark that they couldn't read those little handbills, he got a little transparency and put it up on the corner, and there took a stand, hot or cold, rain or shine. Many a man was won by his efforts. The following extract from an address given at this time on how to reach the poor illustrates his keen judgment in dealing with men at this early date. We don't make our services interesting enough to get unconverted people to come. We don't expect them to come. We'd be surprised enough if they did. To make them interesting and profitable, ask the question, how can this be done? We must wake the people up. If you can't talk, read a verse of scripture and let God speak. Bring up the question, what more can we do in our district? Get those who never do anything to say what they think ought to be done, and then ask them if they are doing it. Don't get in a rut. I abominate ruts. Perhaps I dread them too much, but there is nothing I fear more. D.W. McWilliams, a lifelong and intimate friend, writing of his first acquaintance with Mr. Moody at this time, says, It is conceded by all who knew him that one of the qualities which made him so useful and successful was his open-mindedness in observing surrounding circumstances. Coupled with this, and largely developed in him, was his willingness to receive suggestions and alertness in adopting them where the work of blessing others would be promoted. It was at the home of a friend in Peoria, Illinois, in 1861, that I first met Mr. Moody. Our host had invited several ministers and two laymen to meet him at dinner. When they arrived, Mr. Moody was not with the others, but inquiry led to the information that he had come early, and was upstairs in a room at prayer with an unconverted friend of the host, who had been induced to call upon Mr. Moody for this special purpose. On being introduced to those present, Mr. Moody soon turned to one of the ministers and said, How do you explain this verse in the Bible? Giving the verse in full. Soon after, he turned to another minister, quoted the verse, and asked, What does this mean? The entire conversation that day was exposition of scriptures, in reply to Mr. Moody's rapid questions, and a stirring of hearts in the direction of personal work, for the salvation of others. The impression made upon the guests that day was of Mr. Moody's love for the souls of others, and his intense desire for Bible knowledge. Soon afterwards, I called upon Mr. Moody in Chicago, and was conducted through his parish. We went to what would now be called the slums. Such a crowd of street gamins, boys and girls of all ages, were following us with loud shouts of, Oh, here's Moody! Come, here's Moody! Evidently, they all knew him as their best friend. He had candy in both side pockets, and gave it freely. We visited house after house of the poor, sick, and unfortunate. He was everywhere greeted with affection, and carried real sunshine into those odes of squalor. He inquired for the absent ones by name. To learn more about God's Peculiar People, visit the links in the description.